What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers Podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions, both in their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own successful internet businesses. Today, I'm talking to Arvid Call. Arvid, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. You and your girlfriend, Danielle, are the founders of a company called Feedback Panda, and you recently posted a pretty exciting milestone about it on Indie Hackers. I think you called the post, We Sold Our SaaS. And you explained that it took you two years to grow Feedback Panda from just an idea into a fully-fledged business, making $55,000 a month in revenue with just the two of you, at which point you sold it. So first of all, congratulations. That's great to hear. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much. That's been, it's been quite amazing. You posted this milestone a month ago now. Obviously, you were super excited at the time. How are you feeling now? Oh, I'm still super excited. Like uh, this, this is a thing that's gonna last us forever because it's just the accomplishment alone is it's wonderful. And the, the doors this kind of stuff opens, the kind of people you get to talk to after this, and the kind of new avenues you can go to. It's just it's just great. Well, you have one of those businesses that I think would be tough to sell. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just two of you, you and Danielle. You bootstrapped the company, so you both owned. Mm-hmm. Uh, together, 100% of the company. You grew super rapidly to $55,000 a month in revenue in just two years. How do you decide to sell a company like that? <laughs> Actually, it took us by surprise. We really never wanted to sell the company, but we built it with it being sellable in mind. It is. Um, I've been reading a lot prior to building this particular company, because there, there was a time when I was not a founder, when I was actually employed at a, at a company in, in Hamburg in Germany while living in Berlin, which is like two and a half hours away by train. So I was commuting three days a week from Berlin to Hamburg and back, which is like f- five hours a day and 15 hours a week that you sit in this metal box, right? And you um, just zoom through to Germany. And if there's one thing about Germany is that uh, the connectivity between cities is really bad. So you didn't have the internet, you just couldn't do anything. So what you could do was reading or listen to, to podcasts or listen to like audiobooks, these kind of things. And I was doing this for two years. So two years, three days a week of two and a half hours of just commuting. So I would listen to all the podcasts I could find, particularly this one. I think I went through the backlog of like every single episode that that you, you made. And I was reading a lot of books, uh, among which was Built to Sell by John Marlowe. And that really stuck with me. Like if you ever build a company, I was thinking, and I wasn't planning to, I was just an employee at that point. If I ever build a company, I'm going to build this ready to sell at any point. Like automate as much as you can, like take yourself out of the business, that kind of stuff. And that stuck with me. And we built the company from the beginning like this. So that there would be optimizations, automations, all towards making it super easy to exit. But we never really wanted to exit because we, we kind of just wanted to grow the company from the idea that it was in the beginning to helping as many teachers as possible. This uh, Feedback Panda was a SaaS for online English teachers. So yeah, that's why it took us by surprise to actually sell the company. What does it mean to build your business with it being sellable in mind? What are some of the tips you got from that book? Well, I think Warlow describes like an agency that... Like, and it's just a story in, in his book where he describes how a, somebody who owns an agency wants to sell it and suddenly notices, hmm, can't really sell my company because I'm the company. Because if, if you have an agency and you do design work and these kind of things, then you have to do the work. It's like being a freelancer, essentially, and in, a, in a corporate box, but it is still just you and your services. So if you are out of the company, if you sell it to somebody else, and then there's no service in there because you were the company. Um, and what he describes for companies who want to be able to sell themselves at some point to somebody, they describes just 
make it that you're not needed. Build the company with you leaving the company in mind or you not needing to be actually working in the company. And that means hiring people. That's, that means building processes. That means building automations and just like making yourself, it's like the opposite of what Seth Godin is talking about in Lynchpin, <laughs> the way you are the, 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 the most important thing, make yourself the least important thing, make the most easily replaceable thing. Make yourself easily replaceable. Terrible advice if you are an employee, but great advice if you're a founder trying to sell your company. And I think it can be very tough to give advice to other founders selling businesses because, quite frankly, everybody's situation is different. So oftentimes people will email me when they're considering selling their company or they're going through an acquisition because I've been through the same thing before with indie hackers. And the situations are just so different. Like if I look at your situation and mine, I was a solo founder. You have a co-founder. I was only making six or seven grand a month when I sold indie hackers. You were making $55,000 a month. I went to work for my acquirer, Stripe, and I've been there actually two and a half times longer than I worked on Indie Hackers by myself. Whereas you basically quit working on Feedback Panda after you sold it. So there's just a lot of variables and it's hard to give advice where anything from your experience actually applies to the person that you're talking to. It's always the same, particularly with bootstrap businesses or Indie Hacker businesses, like all advice is anecdotal. Like everything you say that you experienced in your business is depending on so many factors that are unique to your own business. But in all this anecdotal advice is a lot of truth that is applicable to every single business, right? Because there are things that just work because they're the right, because they're the right thing to do. And there are things that work because they're the right thing to do for your unique business at the time. And you kind of have to figure out which is which. And a lot of advice uh, that bootstrappers give each other is kind of always coming with the caveat of this might not be the right thing for you, but think about it. Think how this could be applicable to your own business and uh, if, if that's the right thing for you. Totally. Yeah. So you said that your acquisition came as a surprise, that you and Danielle were just happy growing Feedback Panda the way you were. Walk me through the story there. What happened to make this acquisition a reality? Well, we got an email. <laughs> um, well, actually, the story goes way back in a way. And I, I think I wrote about this in the exit interview that we gave, like Fortress with Capital, who we sold our company to. They made a nice interview with us, and I could actually tell the story where it all started. And it started, funny enough, with uh, an Indie Hackers podcast episode for me. You were interviewing Moritz Dausinger, if you remember that, like way back, who, who yeah, sold his two businesses. Doc Parser, Mail Parser. Exactly. He, was, who, he sold these two to Shoeswift, um, I, I guess, must have been like three or four years ago. It, it's, it's been a while, at least. And I distinctly remember... We started our company, yeah, it must have been June or July 2017, around that time. It's always kind of hard because in your mind, you started way earlier and then you kind of formalize it into an extra company. And I remember the day I went to the bank to open the bank account for our company, I was listening to that particular episode with Moritz. And on my way back from opening the bank account, I listened to the last part of it. And he was mentioning that he sold his company and he sold it to Shoeswift Capital. So I was thinking, oh, that's kind of interesting. There's a, there's a company that would buy companies like this and uh, that would uh, have such a positive kind of vibe with the founder who sold it to them that he would then talk about it. That's kind of cool. So I Googled them and kind of forgot about it. <laughs> Two years later, we get an email from Kevin, Kevin McArdle, who is the CEO of Shoeswift Capital. And I see the email and I immediately thought, oh, yeah, these guys. Because I remember back then, your episode um, with Moritz, and that, that was like, the, the, yeah, it, it, it's just like full circle. The day we opened the bank account was also the day we kind of stopped uh, having needing a bank account for the company. So uh, because it started like the whole acquisition process. So we, we, we exchanged a lot of emails, we got um, just talking. Um, we, Danielle and I, we started talking to other people who sold to Shoeswift, did our own due diligence on the company, like on the company that would then acquire us. They, of course, did their due diligence on us. So... That happened. Then we actually got to an agreement 
and transitioned the company out. It was all extremely easy and extremely painless. But that was because we had all these optimizations and all these automations and all this making yourself sellable in place. Also, I'm a German, so I keep tight records of everything because that that kind of taught to do this in, in a way. And we had every every document in place. I did a lot of documentation just because I like it, which I guess is kind of masochistic if you think about it. But documentation to me doesn't just mean like documenting your code. It's also documenting processes and building systems and then making it easy for somebody else to transition into them. All that allowed us to just really make make it super easy to transition the company from, from us to SureSwift. And we had a great time. We still have a great time. We talked to them. It was wonderful. I met Kevin for the first time at MicroConf Europe in Dubrovnik just a couple of weeks ago. So we did all this pretty much without seeing each other, but it worked out super well because there was a connection from the beginning. And of course, the story that goes way back. Yeah, that's crazy to hear that. I'm, I'm glad the Indie Hackers podcast could play a role in at least you recognizing uh, who Kevin and, and SureSwift were. Hey, you're kind of um, responsible for it if you think about it. So, <laughs> where's you know? my cut? Where's my cut, Arvid? <laughs> yeah, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> so, what are you? What are you up to now that you sold your company? I mean, a lot of people compare their company to their baby, and I guess in a way, selling your company is like selling your baby. You know, what do you do? What do you do after that? Well, the first thing that Danielle and I did was to take a vacation because that's that's the the one thing that we couldn't do in running a company running a bootstrap company, a SaaS like, that had global customers for two years. We were working 24-7 every single day, like from the first day. From the first day we had paying customers, we were always there for customer support. We always had to like, maintain the integrations that we have. We always had to fix bugs when they happened and help people out and react to the market, react to our customers' needs, all these kind of things. So we never really were able to take a vacation. So that's the first thing we did a couple of weeks ago. Went to South Africa, finally, uh, for 10 days. And that was a lot of fun being surrounded by wild animals for a change and not just computers. So that was really cool. It got us an opportunity to relax a little bit and just to center ourselves again. Because if you if you work on business for two years or, or more, I guess, uh, without a break, you kind of, yeah, you, you have like blinders, right? This is something you could stare at whatever you've been doing and you kind of want to repeat and improve and grow and these kind of things. But you never really stop and look into yourself. You don't like reflect where you are, what your goals are. Like the, the goal that we set for Feedback Panda, funny enough, the goal that I set, I guess, for myself for Feedback Panda in the beginning was to get to 50K MRR. That was like the biggest thing I could imagine. It was like, oh my, that would be the, the most wonderful thing to build a business that does 50K in MRR. And we hit that. And then we didn't have any goals anymore. Like we didn't set them. Like it's just, we reached it. And oh yeah, that's kind of cool. Let's just continue. So uh, that at least was my goal at that point. So our uh, what we're going to be doing now is do some reflecting, do some relaxing for a change, and then just see what happens. Because having built, having run, I guess, and sold the company allows us to help other people do the exact same thing, both in a, in a consulting way, I would guess, and just informing people, telling people. I've, I've started a, a blog called thebootstrapfounder.com on which I just try to distill whatever I learned and all mm -hmm. these things I learned into to articles that can help other bootstrap founders just get to where I got and further and just just see perspective into a successful business that that actually worked and why it worked and how they can apply it to themselves. So that's what I'm doing. Danielle is also finding herself again and then we'll do the exact same thing, like find a, a meaningful way to help other people. Yeah, it's interesting how um, when you're working on a company, it's kind of like going for like a long swim or something and you're just underwater the whole time and you finally, you know, things come to an end and you finally come up for air and the whole world is different. 
you know, you're a different person, the times are different, and you've just sort of missed a lot of it because you've been so single-mindedly focused on what you've been working on. And it's, it's really, I think, refreshing to get to the end of that process. Yeah. The kind of self-reflection you can do when you're out of this is very intense because you notice, oh my God, I had all these anxieties. I had all these fears all the time, and they were driving me into doing this, into not doing that. Like all these things that I now can just retroactively figure out about myself. I never really had the time to while I was working on the company. And that's the thing about a bootstrap founder. I mean, we were two people. That's already splitting everything in half. But if you're a solo, so like a solopreneur, you are both responsible for keeping stuff going and then responding to people who complain about stuff not going and fixing it. All these kind of things at the same time. Like, of course you really uh, a hard time figuring out where you are because you're always wearing all these hats and in between all these kind of seats so now finally i have some time to to figure stuff out and yeah that's a big benefit of not having to work on the business anymore so let's talk about the business itself i want to dig into the early stories and how you started this which oftentimes when i talk to somebody who sold their company like we're going back five years ago ten years ago but since you did this so quickly we only have to go back two years for you to talk about the beginning of your company why did you start feedback panda in the first place Danielle is um, both my co-founder and my partner, my life partner. And we were living, well, we are still living in Berlin. And we were living together in Berlin in a small apartment. And I was working a half remote, half present software developer job. And she, being a trained opera singer, was singing in Berlin and doing these kind of things. But as art is a very seasonal kind of thing, she needed to make some money on the side. So she was teaching English online. And the, the way she was teaching English online was for uh, Chinese companies that would hire M- Americans, like North American teachers or people who are able to speak uh, the native language, like English. And they would then teach Chinese children English as a second language over the internet. So that's what she was doing. And she was doing that quite a bit because we had student loans to pay and these kind of things. So she was working 10 hour days. And um, these Chinese schools are all essentially the same. China has very like, rigid kind of regiment there. And um, you would teach a student one-on-one for 25 minutes. And then you would have five minutes to take a break, get some coffee or do whatever. And then you would teach the next one. And that would happen all over the day, right? You, 10 hours of working is essentially 20 students that you would need to teach. After that, the parents of the uh, student, they expect some sort of feedback. And that's where the name Feedback Panda came from, because that feedback making, that feedback writing process took forever. If you teach for 10 hours a day and you have to write student feedback for every single lesson that you taught, which is 20, and you take like five to 10 minutes to type out some stuff, what did they do? Like, did they do well? What should they be doing in preparation for the next lesson? And uh, yeah, what was actually being taught and did they understand? You take like five to 10 minutes for each of these things. That's two hours a day in just additional work. And that was not being paid. Like they were only paid for the time they taught. Um, the schools expected them to do it in the five minutes between lessons, but like you can't really do that. You can spend five to 10 minutes in five minutes and still have a bio break or get some coffee or whatever, right? Just doesn't work. So Danielle was working two extra hours a day, which is after 10 hours of teaching is 12 hours. So we essentially didn't ever really see each other. And at some point she just built her own little system to fix this problem. She was starting to write, she started writing templates to then use for the repeat lessons that she would teach because she would teach the same lessons over and over just to different students. So the content would be the same. And she would have a Word document here and an Excel sheet there and all these kind of things. Uh, at some point, she just asked me, can't we do something about this? Like, can't we build something here? And being a software engineer, the answer is always yes. Doesn't <laughs> Of course, right? If you see some kind of system that could be automated as a software engineer, you just jump at it. Like, oh yeah, I don't want to do it twice. I'm going to automate it right away. So... um 
under her guidance, because she knew exactly what she needed, I built a little prototype. She also knew exactly what the market is, because there is, at that point, there was like 15, 20,000 teachers just like her doing the exact same job, having the exact same problem. Like, yeah. this is not just like randomly guessing who might have a problem and what it might be. Like, this was exactly the same problem that everybody had. So we knew if we figure out a solution to this, because we knew the problem, the most painful problem that teachers had, they would really, really like it. And two hours of uh, writing feedback unpaid, turning that into what is at this point, five minutes of using Feedback Panda, that's substantial because every single day that's saving you two hours. And if you are an online English teacher, you could just teach for two hours more. You could just make more money. So with a, at that point, it was like 10 bucks a month, a subscription as, as a SaaS, just teaching one more lesson would already pay for the month's worth of saving your time. So that's where the product came from. And, and we, we did some marketing. And by marketing, I mean one Facebook comment, like a comment on Facebook on the thread that was in one of these groups that these teachers have. And it just snowballed from there. It was word of mouth all the way. I love so many things about how you started because it's so different than I think some of the common mistakes that ND hackers make when they get started. I think the most common thing is, oh, I've got a great idea for this product or the service. I'm going to build it. I'm going to code it. And then I'm going to figure out, you know, who's going to use this and what problem it's going to solve and why they're going to use it. Whereas you did it the other way around. You started off by identifying a problem. It's like, hey, my girlfriend is working 12 hours a day. Uh, maybe it would be nice if she only had to work 10 or 11 hours a day or she could get paid more. And she's doing the same thing over and over again. And you also understood you know, not just what the problem was, but who had this problem. You had a very clear profile that it's these people who are teaching for these Chinese companies and having to do these lesson plans. And so you had a problem and you had a market. And then you worked backwards with somebody who was actually feeling that problem, Danielle, namely, to figure out a solution. So I think that's, um, it's not shocking that you've had so much success with Feedback Panda when you started it off in such a great way. It was a revelation to me in retrospect, understanding what we did, because we didn't really do it consciously as like, oh, we're going to follow these steps and then we're going to be successful. Right? It just happened to be um, a per perfect situation where we understood exactly who we were going to sell something to. And from there on, we kind of figured out what is the best way of solving their biggest problem. And now in retrospect that I think about it, that is actually a great way of, of getting a product that at least has some sort of validation built in. Is like what you said, most people who, who post uh, their, their great product ideas on Product Hunt are essentially hunting for an audience. They're, not, they're hunting for an audience that may have a problem that could potentially be solved by the project or product that they built, which, like I said, is the wrong way. Right? You want to find the, the amount of people that can reliably sustain a business just with their biggest problem that you then solve in a way that actually makes them want to pay for it. And there, there are there are very interesting concepts. I've been been uh, reading a book by April Dunford recently about product positioning, and she was also talking about a co competition and these kind of things. And if people have a system in place that is maybe like self built with Excel or with Word or just like notes somewhere that they actually manually write, that is already validation, right? You don't have to have a competitor in the space, like an actual company that is like you. Actually, somebody writing down notes on a, on a notepad is already validation for um, at least a problem or at least the, the potential of a solution to a problem. And that is that is very interesting because I've, I've uh, since then have looked into a lot of my of, uh, yeah, my friends and family and see where they solve problems that way. And there's a lot of potential to build good services on what people already do 
um, manually, but, but it still has to be the biggest problem. I think that's that's a qualifier that you have to put in there. So just any problem that they solve with notepads, you know, how people still write notes when they do a shopping list and they don't really use their phone because that's just not that important. They just don't want to get their phone out and it's not their biggest problem. I think like being able to pay rent is more important than installing it in another app. But if you, if you find a, an audience that's big enough to sustain you and find their most painful problem, then you're really halfway there, essentially. And, and only yeah. then do you want to go uh, and look into the actual solution to the problem? Because you just want to reduce it back to the audience and, and then go audience problem uh, solution. Exactly. And the audience that you're building for, the market that you're targeting, that's the hardest thing to change. It's the thing that you have the least control over. If you uh, build the wrong product, you can kind of change that. If you have the wrong business model or pricing plans, like you can change those. If your distribution channels aren't working out, you can change those. If your team is not right, you can hire new people. But if the market that you're targeting doesn't exist or if the problem you're trying to solve isn't a real problem, then there's really nothing you can do about that. You can't conjure a bunch of people out of thin air who have the problem you're trying to solve. So that's kind of the weak link in the chain. And that's where you should start, I think, if you're going to start a business. Do you remember the early conversations that you and Daniel had around this, around what the product was going to look like and how it was going to address the needs of other teachers? Yeah, well, it was like, how much can we actually solve with software here? Because it is it is still teaching. It's still something that is between a teacher and a student. It's it's a very relational thing, right? You you have a have a student you want to build a relationship with. That the student wants to be um, respected and also taught sensibly by a teacher. So you can't just really automate everything because computers don't have a soul, I guess, at that point, and they can't really be relational in that way. So we were always trying to figure out how much of the work that the teacher needs to do is actually tedious and automatable. And that, that was a lot of the, the early conversations because it was all about like, we, we can do a lot with templating, but we can't template everything. We can't like automatically generate everything for the teacher. And that shouldn't be how a teacher then talks to the parent either, right? Because it's it's still about being personal and being just accurate to res- correctly telling people what happened in the lesson. But the the thing is how much you, that the content would never change. So having a template for the content was perfectly fine. So the templating system behind Feedback Panda, that was in the beginning the most important thing. And it is to this day the most important thing because not only did we build a templating engine, but we built a collaborative templating engine because we figured out Teachers really like sharing information. So it's, it's not, a, not a big surprise, I guess, but the, um, teachers really love helping each other. It's one of these industries where, where people are not envious of each other's success. Because if you're a good teacher, then you are a teacher to another teacher. You're inspiring. So that made our marketing quite easy too, because we, we kind of triggered people's willingness to share good information about how they became a better teacher and then like get get them to refer people to Feedback Panda, like build up on the, the kind of referral system that we then also built in the future. But people were already doing this without as incentivizing them because they really love sharing information. And we built that into our system as well. We made our templating system um, collaborative. We allowed people to share templates with other teachers, to them to be able to import templates and all these kind of things, building a network effect into the product, which then also exploded growth. This is really good stuff. I hope people are uh, listening closely. Yeah, it, it was it was uh, how we thought, how can we make this an actual usable solution to the problem that these people have, that the teachers are so desperately fighting every single day. And then the ideas just came. And then Danielle has been amazing at understanding teachers, being a teacher herself. She's been amazing at designing a product because I have not a designer. I, I'm a good developer, I guess, but I'm, I'm terrible at good UX. <laughs> can phrase it like that, but she's been amazing. She's been building a tribe of teachers around herself and around the product as well, allowing us to do marketing that is almost hands off. 
Because once you, you give information into a community that is willing to share, it just gets disseminated automatically. You don't have to like trigger people. You just have to provide and, and they will, they will, yeah, share the, the good news, I guess, about the product and about how it helped them and these kind of things. So while I'm, I have always been the technical part, like making it like technically possible, all the ideation, all the product management, the product design came through Danielle because she was the person who had the problem, right? It was her product to, to dog food, I guess, because she needed the solution. And then she also knew what solution she would need. I love how much we're talking about the market and the audience. Uh, and we might be getting a little bit repetitive here, but I just want to keep talking about it because it's so important <laughs> and it's so overlooked. I think especially if you're the stereotypical founder, you're focused on the thing that you're building. You know, What's that going to look like? How are you going to build it? What tools are you going to use? What's it going to be called? What are all the bells and whistles and features you're going to put into it? And that's what gets you excited. And, you know, I think you need that creative energy. Like if that gets you excited, that's great. It's probably something that should be celebrated because even having that kind of creative energy is rare. But also, uh, you should probably take some time to do some research and sanity check your idea before you just jump into the product because the market is just so key to your success. Like you're saying, the fact that you're targeting teachers and teachers are a group of people who talk to each other frequently and who aren't super envious and competitive and who will therefore like share the new tools and tricks and tactics that they learn that allows for you to grow through word of mouth if you build a product for teachers. And that's not true for every market. And that's also something that you could kind of figure out before you even get started building your product if you sit down for like five or 10 minutes to just think about who is my customer going to be. So I think it's kind of a shame that so many people will just jump in and start building without asking questions like, who is this for? And what are these people like? And where do they hang out? And you know, what do they read? And what problems do they have? And how do they learn new yeah. things and share information? And what do they pay for? What problems do they find valuable? Like, there's so many questions you can ask before you even get started to figure out if your company has a chance of succeeding. Yeah, I, I guess it's it's a big problem with software development in, in general because I, I guess most people who are indie hackers, at least the, the hacker part of them, they, they are software engineers. And if you're if you're classically trained through a university, um, they don't really teach you anything about business. They don't really teach you anything about people to begin with. If you're if you're coming from a, a self-trained kind of place, or if you go through a boot camp, it still is focused on the technical skill. And the thing is, if you have this tool, it's like the the, the nail hammer kind of thing, right? You you have the hammer, everything kind of looks like a nail. And if building a product is what your hammer is, then whatever you see, the first thing you jump to is I'm gonna build a product because I can. And then you're gonna uh, then you think, oh, I'm, I'm going to use this kind of software this time because that's kind of cool. And I'm, I'm using this platform or I'm using these kind of services. And you start building it. You scaffold your thing. You build an API and all these kind of things instead of reflecting on the business side because you're never taught. As a software engineer, if you come from that background, you just don't know about these things until somebody tells you, oh, yeah, and you want to make money, right? And it's not just integrating Stripe, although that's a big part, but getting people to come to your product like these kind of things that you, you never learn unless you're actively engaged in the in the community on indie hackers on, on diverse range of platforms like Twitter or like Medium whatever like if you're actively looking for this information but that already uh, presupposes that you know that you need to know these kind of things and nobody ever tells you so that, I think that's the problem we, we just look at everything through a product lens which is why there's so many products looking for market like product market fit to me is a weird weird phrase because you shouldn't fit a product into a market you should see a market and then um yeah go figure out a problem it's like market problem fit or something like that like the, the product is a result it's not something to that is on the same level as a market or an audience yeah i couldn't agree more and i think you're you're kind of similar to me in that you like to research and analyze things and plan ahead and try to prevent 
making certain mistakes. And a lot of people are the opposite. You know, they would rather just fire from the hip. They're really big on intuition. And, you know, my personal opinion is that if you're a founder, you don't want to leave things to luck. If you decide there's an entire area of your business that you don't want to think about, that doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. That just means that you've yeah. left it to luck. You might as well have just hired luck as your co-founder and given mm-hmm. him an entire set of responsibilities while you go off and do this other fun stuff. And, you know, for me, I used to be more like that until I failed at a bunch of businesses. And I looked back and was like, wow, these were entirely preventable. And if I had just asked a few questions, I probably wouldn't have made these mistakes. So I wonder what it was like for you. <laughs> that's that's exactly what I was thinking because I also started and failed a lot of businesses before. Feedback Panda to me has been an overnight success, many many years in the making. I I started my software career here in Berlin at a small software agency. Worked while I was doing my studies, my IT studies that I never really finished. Dropped out at some point, but uh, while I was doing that, I was working on the Typo three backend module kind of thing. Like back then when PHP was still extremely bad. It has improved, or so I hear. And and that was my first job. And then I, I kind of stopped studying this. I went to a different university and studied political science uh, because I wanted to do something completely different. Um, and at some point, I get a, get a tweet by a company in, in, in Silicon Valley in San Francisco if uh, they had looked at my GitHub profile and thought it was kind of interesting uh, if I wouldn't want to work for them. A couple of weeks later, I'm in San Francisco. Um, meeting these people. And then I got a job there, like working remotely from Germany for them as well. And... Uh, worked for a VC-funded company, saw how that worked, because that was also very insightful just to see uh, what can happen at scale if there's a lot of money, but also what does happen if there's a lot of money. And we've just been uh, having this big discussion in, in, on Twitter about 1Password and the VC kind of money and all these kind of things. You see a lot of positions there, some very positive, some, some extremely negative, looking at what VC money can do. That was also very interesting um, back for me back, uh, back then. I stopped working for that company at some point, went back to Germany, or well, still in Germany, I guess, but went to Berlin. I started a company, another bootstrapped company with a friend that didn't really go anywhere because we didn't do any marketing. And then I started another bootstrap company with another friend that didn't really go anywhere because we didn't have any payment system integrated into our mar- marketplace platform. So I've been part of a lot of projects that didn't go anywhere because we were not prepared. And, you know, like once you have an experience, you kind of have your takeaways from it. And I'm, I'm an avid reader. I read a lot. I read whenever I can. And for that reason, it was great that I had two years of five hours, three days a week of just reading and taking in information. And if you just take, take in enough of the correct kind of information, I guess, it just sticks and it changes your way of thinking about things. So yeah, I, I also come from a lot of failures, but they all had their, their little golden nugget of information and insight. Let's talk about how you grew Feedback Panda early on, because that's something that a lot of founders struggle with. How do you get that first paying customer in the door? Once you have them, how do you get a second and so on and so forth? What was your game plan for finding customers in the early days? So our our hope was in the beginning that we, we wouldn't ever force it on anybody because we knew that even though it is a community of sharing a lot of information and that is really good, if you do the wrong thing, they share that too, right? So we were really careful never to push our solution onto people. So we never did a, oh, this is our product kind of post in any of these Facebook groups. And Facebook groups, they were, because that is where um, a lot of the people who turn out to be online English teachers that work from home are. Most of them are female. Most of them are from the Southern states in the in the United States. And there's a lot of stay-at-home, stay-at-home parents there. And they 
just from, I guess, their age group and who they are, they hang out on Facebook. So there was a lot of Facebook groups. And in these groups, we really, really carefully just put the link to our product into comments. We never put it in the post. We just responded to people who already were interested in feedback and how other people dealt with it. So our strategy was to really slowly, really carefully um, talk to the right people in a location that was essentially their water cooler where they hung out to just chat about the work. And we didn't really have an acquisition strategy other than let's see if people bite. And they did bite and they started sharing it and we just amplified their voices as well. We responded to their questions. We responded to their comments. We just allowed them to communicate with us, particularly with Danielle. She wrote blog posts about the origin of Feedback Panda. She wrote blog posts about like teaching English online. At some point, we also, um, our, our marketing strategy was always very social media focused. We started doing the VI Panda which is the, the this week's most important teacher where we would find a teacher that is interesting from our user base and just interview them every single week. And we would do that for the whole time. And there was this catalog of interesting teachers that come from all over the world that teach maybe from home or they are in Thailand. They're just like expats somewhere and they teach from there. And and these kind of these kind of stories were so engaging that people just found their way into our subscriber base, I guess, through engaging content that they could relate to. So relatable content and being careful not to push stuff on people, I guess, would be what we did as a strategy. And the engagement happened because Danielle was already in these groups and had been there for the whole time she was teaching. She'd been working at her job as an English teacher for, I think, three or four months before we had that epiphany that we could actually solve this with software. And Leading up to that, she was already part of all these kind of communities. And she was a normal member, like a participating member of these communities. It's not that she would jump in a community that she was never in before and would say, hey, look at this. But she was already there. She already had been part of discussions. She already had communicated and shown that she really loved teaching. So people were, I guess, uh, not expecting marketing. But they just expected, yeah, word of mouth marketing because that's how people share other things in these communities as well. Good webcams to use, like good microphones, these kind of things. So there was already some sort of exchange about products and services going on. So we could just really latch onto that and, and put our product in there too. But in a way that was not threatening or pushy. Yeah, it's fascinating to me how much of your thoughts around growing Feedback Panda were around things that you wanted to avoid doing. It wasn't just, you know, we've got this plan and it's great. It's also... Uh, here are the things we have to make sure absolutely to never do. We can't force our product on anybody because if we step on the wrong toes, then word of mouth becomes a double-edged sword. And you don't really want to be on the wrong edge of that sword. And you're also cognizant of the fact that you had these Facebook groups that were these communities and they're lively and vibrant, but every community has its own set of rules and customs and traditions and norms. And if you come in and participate in a way that's not authentic to how that community normally works, mm-hmm. then people are going to know. You know, you're going to stick out like a sore thumb and you're not going to, your growth strategies aren't going to work. So I think a lot of people could learn from what you did and taking the time to understand who you were targeting and how to best get in front of them. It's, uh, to me, it's important being a software developer that was not a teacher to also understand who we're selling to, right? Like, and I, I kind of wanted to, to really get how these teachers worked. I, like worked in a, in a sense of how they worked internally and how they worked, like how their work day was, like how they did what they did and being able to be a part of the community, or at least I, I guess watching Danielle be a part of the community gave us and myself a lot of insight into the psychology of our audience. And going back to what we said earlier, like if, if you think audience first, the psychology of the audience is of utmost importance because that also determines how an audience actually solves their problems. 
There are audiences where people think they know everything already in their job and they would never use any different kind of system because what they have in place is perfectly fine. You see this a lot in restaurants where people don't want to upgrade their technology because they feel this is perfect. That's exactly what we need. And uh, if, if we get a new system, then our waiters are going to be confused. And honestly, in Dubrovnik, we, we were having... Uh, uh, dinner at some point and there was this waiter with his phone android phone and he had this app where he would need to take the order and it took like five minutes for him to, to actually get the order of, of six people in because it was so complicated and it was so weird for him to use the system because it was brand new and he didn't know how to do it and he didn't know how to add like oh yeah potatoes instead of fries these kind of things it was super complicated so people seem to forget that their audience has a certain way of doing things or at least has a certain way of approaching change and knowing that, knowing how these people in a certain audience, in our audience, teachers, would react to change, how they would react to other people suggesting things that they didn't know yet, allowed us to really carefully word our marketing material. It allowed us to focus on alleviating fears that people would have, that it would sound like too mechanical or that it would be machine generated, these kind of things. You know, but the online English teachers, they already are somewhat technical. But then there's a big variety within the rest. There's people who know everything about computers, and then there's people who you have to tell to turn it off and on again. You know, like the, it's it's a it's a variety of skill levels. So if once you figure out what these are, it makes creating content for these uh, people in the audience much easier. It allows you to build automation systems that hit the the people who need it most at the at the right moment with the exact correct information right? and word it in a way so they understand it. Because if you tell somebody to reinstall their browser extension to us. Yeah, okay, gonna go to browser extensions and I'm uninstalling it and installing it again. But to some people who don't even know what a browser is, like how, how do you communicate that, right? And that allowed us to build self-help systems that would speak to everybody on different levels in the same approachable way because we knew what the uh, lowest common denominator was. So audience research to me is the, the most important thing in a business because it will it will show you what problems there are. It will show you which are the most important problems. It will show you how people will react to you, how they will react to your product, how you have to engage with them. It all starts with the audience. That is, uh, I think, one of the most important learnings that I had from Feedback Panda. Yeah. Because it made us so clear. Yeah, I love how your knowledge of your audience was something that affected every part of your business. So it helped you come up with your initial idea. It helped you decide on different features. It helped you decide on your marketing messaging and how you phrase things. It's really something that suffuses throughout your entire business. Um, I wonder if you ever saw anything when you were researching your audience that gave you pause. Because so far, it sounds like it was all sunshine and rainbows. It was all good news all the time. Was there anything about your audience that made it particularly challenging? Yeah, I think so. There's a couple of things. There's always volatility in in a job like this, I guess, because it was uh, it was essentially like Uber drivers. You're a contractor. Uh, the people that we sold to were contractors to these Chinese companies. They were not employees, but contracted out. And these companies, Chinese companies, had uh, gigantic hiring sprees where they would try to get as many people as possible. Because in a, I guess, in a Chinese way of doing business, you want to be the biggest so everybody else just starves in the market and then you get the whole market. So that was the approach that they were doing with hiring the contractors as well. So they were scaling up their hiring in intensely, which was great for us because we started with 15,000 teachers that were our market. And two years later, it was like 70, 80,000 teachers that were our market. So the market was uh, scaling for us as well, which was kind of cool. But um, there's risk in that. There's risk that in this kind of uh, predatory market, 
the company that you support or the companies that you support through integrations or to target as your customer base just evaporates. So there was always a risk that the market could just implode. And, and China is, is very well known for imposing regulation that destroys whole economy, the parts of the economy. So while they did impose regulation, they didn't really uh, restrict the companies that much. So it's actually good good for the for Feedback Panda, both in the past and in the future. They, China, it's funny, they actually uh, impose regulation that limits the time of day that your child can take online English classes. Because, you know, Chinese parents and like the... The whole, uh, our child has to be the extremely, the very best of all children in China. They were pushing their kids to go to school, after school tutoring, and they would stay up until like 10 or 11 at night being taught English online. There was a lot of kids that just fell asleep. And I saw that like through the, the, the video and stuff. They just were through, the day was over and they still were supposed to do English online courses. So they import, enforce the regulation that say, okay, after 8 p.m., no more, no more teaching children online, which is interesting because that has like a, an, an effect on the companies, right? The Chinese English uh, schools. So now they need to like shift their whole uh, hours in the day a bit towards the morning. And then teachers who are in the United States, in China, when it's, it's the evening, it's like the early morning in, in the United States. So you have like the time zone difference as well. It's actually perfect for us in, in Berlin, in Europe, because it was a nine to five day for us, where it was a two or three a.m. to eleven a.m. day for the Americans, and I guess a six p.m. to eleven p.m. for the kids in China. So we were right in the middle in many, many ways. So that worked out for us. But that was one one fear that the market could just collapse. And the second one that is also very important, I think, particularly for a bootstrap business, the teachers really don't make much money, and no no matter where you go, teachers are always underpaid, they're always overworked and unsupported. Which is a great market if you think about it from a business perspective. It's a really bad market if you look about it, uh, look at it from an employment perspective. And that also means that it is very likely that some of the teachers could really not afford 10 bucks a month. They, they wouldn't even have Netflix because they couldn't afford that, right? So that, that's why we, we priced it quite low, even though it was a tool that would allow you to make, yeah, I, I guess like 30 additional dollars every single day that you would teach which for most people would be like 20 or 20 days a month. So we could have priced it way higher to still provide value, but we were really careful not to overprice it because that would leave out the people who would need it most. And we were always quite lenient when it came to like uh, credit cards bouncing or these kind of things, because, you know, like in a, in a low income market, you want to be supportive. And that also was important branding for a company, to be quite honest. We help people when they needed help. That, that when their their credit card would be overdrawn, we gave them a lot of time to fix it and, and help them out, these kind of things. And that helped us with our branding as well, because it was just genuinely helpful. Like we just wanted to help these people. That's where we built the product to begin with. But yeah, market shift and people not being able to afford it. But it worked out in both ways. You have all these different puzzle pieces that fit together. You've got a market where people talk to each other. And so your reputation matters a lot. And you also know that teachers don't make very much money. And so you're super lenient, understanding and supportive and affordable. And so people talk about that and word gets around. And that just makes your business, you know, an even better, friendlier option for people in your market. And there's also, you know, Chinese laws and regulations and culture that play into things where I guess one factor we haven't really talked about is how that affects the size of your market. The fact that there are these huge Chinese companies that are pushing to hire more and more teachers means that you know, the number of customers that you can sell to is growing. And that means that your business is easier to grow. And a lot of people start businesses and markets that are, you know, either stagnant or dying. And they wonder why it's so hard for them to to grow. You know, they're like, oh, I just want to capture 5 or 10% of the market. Yeah. But if the market's only like, I don't know, a few thousand customers, 5 or 10% of it's not that much. In your case, you had 
you know, many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or maybe even more teachers who you could sell to. And so I have to imagine that played a huge role in you being able to grow so quickly. I think the, the important part here is that the market still has had a cap. Like it was both large enough and small enough to be good for bootstrap business. Because the moment you have a gigantic market, you have these gigantic players, right? Because obviously there's a lot of money to be made. But if you are in a market that has, I guess at this point, there's like 150,000 um, online English teachers in this particular niche, like online uh, English as a second language for Chinese children from the age of like four to 15 or something, that, that would be like maybe 200,000 and it's still growing, but it is, there's a limit. And that limit keeps the gigantic corporations away from you. So for an indie founder, that's amazing because you know exactly there's not going to be, I don't know, IBM just like throwing a product in there because it's, it's not worth it for them, but it certainly is worth it for you. So the audience, the market being both large enough and small enough for a, a bootstrap business, th that was luck for us, I guess, but we, we found it, we, we saw these properties and then we knew we could do something with it, right? So if, if you know what to look for, it makes it easier at least to dismiss markets where it's not like that, they, that are either way too small, just a couple thousand people, a couple thousand people, like you have one or two people that are competing with you and all of a sudden nobody gets to make money because you're just like outspending each other and you're like Google ads or whatever. And, and even just marketing is super expensive when you have to fight for these low volume kind of terms. But if it's too big, then you have competition that you can fight. You, you might want to join them, I guess, at some point, hope to be bought. But I don't think boot, bootstrap businesses start with that in mind. You don't want to be bought by a big company, like not by a gigantic company um, necessarily. You may want to exit, but maybe not that way, right? Because you still, I, I think you connect it with the, the audience of your market as a bootstrap founder. You don't just do something because it kind of makes money. Like if you're going to throw yourself into this for years to come, you better do it for something you want to do. Right. And that you actually care about and you connect with. And that was true for, for Danielle and me with online English teachers because we saw their plight and her being one herself. And um, it was also true for the other projects that I started before, but failed at, to be honest. Like I, it was a local food startup and a startup for uh, photographers or something. I, I kind of was interested in it, but not as much as this time, because this time I knew exactly that there was a problem that we could solve and not just a product looking for a problem, looking for an audience. You mentioned something that I think is super interesting, which is that you kind of want to be in this Goldilocks zone where the market you're targeting is not too big, not too small. It's just the right size where you can actually make money and be profitable without having to worry about some huge company coming in and getting interested because there's too much money and they just want to take all of it. And so if you look at products that target all teachers everywhere, you have these huge companies like Blackboard, which are just massive and would be very difficult to compete against. But you had a niche. You were only targeting English-speaking teachers who worked for these this limited number of Chinese companies teaching English to these Chinese students online. And so uh, your market was the right size for you. If someone else listening is an indie hacker and they're targeting a market, how can they know whether or not their market is the right size? There's, there's, there's two answers to that. Like For a market that has no competition, like in our case, you just try to figure out how many people have this problem, essentially. And it was it was fairly easy for Danielle, I guess, because she knew exactly uh, from her research she did on in the, all these online communities of teachers that everybody who would uh, teach a certain amount would run into this problem, right? There was like a, a class of people that that had a shared problem and would have a shared pain. So for a market that has no competition, that's the only way you can do it. Because the moment there's competition, you can kind of figure out what size is my competition. And if the competition is a gigantic corporation, then the market may be too big for you. If your uh, competition is a couple of uh, scrappy bootstrap companies, you might actually be an in, in an interesting niche. That, that would be my suggestion here. Because uh, we've also targeted way too big market that had venture-funded competition like... Uh, 
the, the local food kind of startup that I was talking about at the time that we were trying to go for that, there was just a company that was being funded by yeah just this big German venture venture fund and and they just like rolled rolled us out of the market in a way. We never really got in there because they had everything, the connections to everybody, and they were just doing everything. So it was too big for us. Yeah, didn't know that before, so I checked. But now I would just say, like, we look at the competitors, and again, in April Dunford's words, it's it's not competitors just as companies, but also competing um, alternatives, the solutions that people use. And if there is an Airtable solution that people use that that deals with 100% of their problem, yeah, might also might might also not be a perfect market because there is a solution in place that already works perfectly. But if you see that people even struggle with their self-built solutions, I think that's a that's a good indicator. But you have to do a lot of research. Um, I think I have a post on, on my blog about how to determine the size of your SaaS market. Just released that last week, and I just try to go through B two B, B two C, and B two B C, which is I guess our market, like business to business consumers, which is individual teachers that are both kind of end consumers but also businesses essentially freelancers and contractors, these kind of people. And there's a number of ways you can actually deal with that. You can you can find the information about the market. Yeah, I, I list a couple of things like going to conferences or figuring out how big conferences are for B2B or trade publications that still exists. People still read paper magazines and stuff. And just figuring out a couple of things about these things will will figure uh, will allow you to understand if the market is the right size for you. And for yeah, B2C is always complicated because there's a lot of people that could be potential customer but a lot of people that will not be, right? Won't ever really be interested in your product. You have the whole, yeah, the hype life cycle and these kind of things where people are located, like early adopters and these kind of things. So you never really know. It's hard to figure it out. There's some ways of, uh, there are some ways of finding that information, but uh, it's kind of more complicated. But the moment you know who has the problem and that these people are actually already looking for a solution, that is the moment you want to act. Let's talk about operationally, how you and Danielle were able to run Feedback Panda. Because most people I talk to who grow a business to this size, they have a full team helping them out. Yeah, you and Danielle never hired anybody full-time to help you out. How were you able to make that work? Well, I, I think I should have hired. <laughs> that's, that's one of the things that I, that I noticed in retrospect. I, I should have hired somebody for customer service way earlier because we were always doing the customer service together in our company from the beginning, Danielle and I. We just take all the incoming things on Intercom. That's what we used and all the, the messages that would come through the live chat and we would respond to it. And then we would build a knowledge base article if anybody ever ran into the problem again and would post it to our knowledge base. So it would be automatically suggested so that building an automated system, but we still would deal with every single incoming piece uh, of um yeah, feedback that people had, like questions or these kind of things. So we dealt with that from the beginning. We dealt with that uh, the first day and the last day. But um, it turned out if you have like 5,000 and more customers, amount, the volume of incoming information, that can be kept under control. But the time when it happens does not. And if you have, I don't know, 20, 30 people reaching out to a team of two every single day, they're prone to be interrupting you at some point. They will interrupt you while you're doing development work. And they interrupted me all the time. I was trying to build features, couldn't, because there was always somebody, how do I delete a student? Or these kind of things. And then I would have to respond to them. And I would go back. And, you know, in being interrupted while you're doing software work, you're going to need half an hour to get back in. 34 minutes later, somebody else would send another question or these kind of things. So it kept me from actually being a software developer. That's the thing I like. That's the thing I love to do. I, I love helping people too. But in the end, like writing code is what I love. So... We didn't hire. We managed. We, we managed to deal with it, but we should have hired much earlier. 
I was responsible, like I said earlier, for all the technical things. And in the end, most of the customer service after, I guess, like 16, 17 months turned out to be technical because we solved all the non-technical things through automation, through suggesting articles with videos on how to do stuff. So all the things that would come through that would not be solved by the articles were technical questions. Can you merge my data? I don't know how to log in. What's my, these kind of things, right? Where you need to have somebody who can look into an SQL database somewhere. Um, So I would do that and the development work. And um, Danielle was always responsible for marketing, for actually leading the company, for leading the tribe of, of teachers around it, for doing the content work, for doing the, the product design, the product management, all these kind of things. That's how we split it. You mentioned that, I mean, you were having trouble getting work done as a software engineer and you were the only developer working on Feedback Panda. How did you get around that? Is that a problem that you're ever able to solve or was it just always inefficient the whole time with you doing customer support and software development? Forced me. It forced me to do as much automation as I could possibly build. I, I had to every. I had to build every single part of the software stack to be completely automated. That means deployments are automated, failovers are automated, um, alerting and restarting the system it needed to be automated. I, I quick, quick look into the tech stack. I guess I built everything on Elixir on the Elixir Phoenix platform. Put that in Docker containers and threw that on the Google Cloud on a Kubernetes. That is the whole stack of Feedback Panda. And there's Vue.js in the front end and then a couple um, Electron-based apps for integrations and a browser extension. But the whole core of the product was an Elixir uh, Phoenix cluster, I guess, that was running on the cloud. And every single step, on every single level, there was automation. For like, if, if something would break, it would automatically come back up. If there was errors, if they would be automatically reported. Like It just could not deal with stuff manually anymore, which is great. Turns out that having a lot of automation makes your company extremely sellable because you don't need to be there anymore. So I think we made a lot of mistakes. I think we made mistakes every single week, maybe every single day, because that's just what being an entrepreneur is. You make mistakes and you figure out what it was and you try not to make the mistake again. You do that a couple thousand times and you succeed, I guess. But all these mistakes um, added up to us building a really solid, really uh, reliable, resilient system that we could hand over within a couple minutes. Once we did, because that, that was what the, the whole um, handover phase when we sold the business was here, log into Google. It's still running. Enjoy. Because there's not much you need to do if everything is automated. And not just automated, but also documented. Because as you said mm-hmm. earlier, you'd already written down everything someone needed to do to run your business. Oh, written, written down is, is not it. I actually recorded an 11 hour session of me walking through my code base and just talking to myself as if I was the next developer that would work on that code base and just explaining all the concepts. And the thing is, once we, we sold the company and we did the transition phase, the first thing we did was hire our replacements. And it was so fun to actually give my then uh, hired replacement just the links to the videos I did. Here, enjoy. This is your first couple of days. Just listen to what this is. Because I then didn't need to do it. It was available for all the developers that would work on it in the future. And it made very clear to myself as well what the breaking points were, like what the things that could potentially lead to trouble down the line were to communicate that in a way that uh, if I hadn't done that, yeah, there might be tripwires somewhere in in the stack, right? But I was able to just explain everything in a a way in this this video series I did. I don't know why I did it. I just felt like I really need to document stuff. And that was the, the best way of doing it. It was the, a lot of fun. The German in you, Arvid. I, I guess, yeah, it must be. There's uh, certainly a lot of um, forced documenting. But it was always fun. It was always enjoyable for me. Because you document, if you write code, you document it for yourself, your future self that doesn't know what the hell you just tried to do in this kind of code two years ago, right? So you, you put that in. And if you look at it from a business perspective, you document it for the people who are going to run the, the company in the future. That might be yourself. 
that might be somebody else. I think if you're a bootstrap entrepreneur, you want to be able to hand over the reins of the company, but not the ownership. That at least should always be the goal, right? You keep it, you benefit because you built this. This is like you, your accomplishment, your value that you provide, but other people can do the work because you might be off doing something else. You have another project or you just need a break. So having all of this in place, yeah, made it sellable, made it easy to hand over. It was just, uh, just a blast. Why didn't you ever hire any full-time employees to help out with Feedback Panda before the acquisition? You know what? I just didn't know how to hire. That's one of these things I was never taught in, in any of the jobs I did before. And I think Danielle always uh, also never hired anybody. I, I kind of was afraid to hire because I didn't know, how does this work? Do I talk to them? Do I have to do that like, interview thing? Like, how, how do I know that they're good? I, I was scared of hiring. And so I never hired. It was a, it was a big mistake in retrospect. And I guess uh, the next project will not have that mistake included. Again, one of these things you kind of learn, but I just really, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know, didn't know how to hire. You know, I think there's things like this at pretty much every business. Daniel Gross, who I've had on the podcast before, wrote a blog post called Dread Tasks. And my brother calls them UG fields because when you run into them, it's just like, ugh. But it's basically just things that you don't want to do as a founder. Stuff that is hard to do or there's a lot of uncertainty. You're not sure how to get started or you're afraid of it for some reason or it's just annoying. And so you just put it off and you never do it or you do it really late. You procrastinate. And sometimes it can kill a business. Like I had a friend a few years back who ended up doing a round of layoffs at his company and he could trace it back to basically a decision to put off enterprise sales. And he's like, yeah, I didn't do enterprise sales because it was scary and hard and we procrastinated and I can trace these layoffs all the way back to that decision two years before. And at Andy Hackers, for example, I'm basically adding groups to the community forum. And I know that growing these groups is going to be a ton of work. It's going to be like starting a bunch of little new communities where I need to post every day. And I've just been procrastinating because it's annoying and not that fun to work on. But, you know, I think in your case, you're able to compensate. You're able to basically survive because you didn't need to hire. You could just automate everything, which is great. Well, yeah, I guess it, it was a result of that. It was a result of me being unable to hire that I thought, okay, well, I need to deal with this now. Because if I had known how to hire, I would have just thought, ah, I'm just going to pay somebody a couple thousand bucks a month and they're going to deal with this. And then they're going to do it manually all the time. And I would have forgot about it. But that, that would have added additional cost to the, to the business in a way. So I'm, I'm happy I didn't know. I mean, now, now that I know, because I had to hire somebody after all, I know both kind of like both things, right? I know that you can avoid it, but you also shouldn't. So. So it's a win-win, I guess, win-win-win for the business, uh, I guess, as well. Yeah, but the, the, the one thing about tasks like this, and everybody tells you that, right? Don't go for the low-hanging fruit because everybody goes for the low-hanging fruit. Go for the most dreaded task because that's the one thing that nobody will go for. So I tried that in many ways, but hiring is just the one thing that I didn't want to do. I'm, I, I think I, I'm more like an introvert inside, I guess. Um, and I don't want to interact with people too much, at least not in these confrontational kind of situations. And hiring is, in some ways, sh shouldn't be. But it feels like, okay, new person, what do I do? I hope I do nothing wrong, these kind of things. So I avoided it. I avoided all the kind of personal things. And hiring is a very important person thing. And I never did it. And uh, I would now. But um, yeah, I, that is the one uh, scary thing I didn't do. We did a lot of scary things. We did a lot of experiments. We up increased our prices by 50% at one point. That worked out. But... It was scary, scary to do, like in, in, make, making stuff almost, yeah, like 50% more expensive for a customer base like ours. It was a risk, but we in introduced a referral system at the same time. So that kind of was a give and take at that point. So that worked out. But we had a lot of these um, scary moments with the product that we that we had no problem going into. But once people were involved, ah, that's not for me. 
<laughs> I guess one of the downsides to um, to not hiring, even if you can't automate everything, is that it kind of erodes your work-life balance. Because one of the best things about hiring is you suddenly have this other person who can actually make decisions on their own. And sometimes they make better decisions than you would have. Mm-hmm. And they can catch little things that you don't have to worry about. And so you end up finding yourself with like these giant chunks of free time. Uh, whereas if you're automating stuff, that takes a lot of time up front where you have to write that code to automate things. So I think it's valuable to learn both as you eventually did. What's your advice for another introverted software engineer out there who's also not had any experience hiring and who maybe needs to confront that choice at, at their company? The, the good thing is most of the people in the, in the software development community are like this. So both the people that are hiring and that are being hired are essentially the same kind of person or often enough, right? I don't want to generalize too much, but most people who are looking for a job may also be the same kind of uh, introvert. I think this is changing and I think uh, communities are getting more diverse, obviously. But the thing is, if you feel like uh, it's a challenge, just think about how much of a challenge it would be for the person on the other side, the person that is trying to find a job, the person that is trying to get into your product, because they may already be interested in being part of it. And so I, I would tell my, my my old self, which is like my uh, six months old self, or six, six months younger self, I guess, not six months old, that wouldn't talk to that guy, um, to just talk to people, just reach out and talk to people and, and try to find somebody who really loves this kind of dreaded task, because as much as I like talking to teachers uh, through intercom, through our chat system, it was not the job I loved. The job I loved was software development, right? So that was the job I couldn't do because I had to do all the, the customer service with Danielle, but still, that was a lot. It, it, it impeded us both to get to where we wanted to be. So try to find somebody who really loves talking to people and loves helping and solving their problems when you're looking for a customer service person and just like jump over your own shadow, just reach out, just talk to them. And mathematically, it's always clear that paying somebody a couple thousand bucks a month for, to doing, for, for doing a job is better than forcing yourself to do the same job at the same time you're doing your own job, getting anxiety, becoming super stressed, not being able to sleep anymore, all these things. Like, obviously, you don't want to do that. But you have to just like, really overcome this inhibition to, um, to hire. I guess that, that's, that's what I would say. You mentioned another difficult thing that you and Danielle ended up doing was raising your prices. Uh, not by 10%, not by 20%, but by 50%. So mm-hmm. looking at your pricing page now and Feedback Panda costs $15 a month. So I assume it was $10 a month mm-hmm. before that. You have a very price sensitive audience. Uh, tell me about how you actually did that and how it turned out. You know what? We started out with two pricing plans. Well, maybe three, well, maybe four. Two, two basic monthly pricing plans, five bucks a month and 10 bucks a month. That was our initial pricing. Like It was even cheaper than now. Um, we scrapped the five bucks a month plan pretty quickly. That, that was literally the, the the first big move we made was to just turn that off because the people who choose a five bucks a month plan on average, not every single one, but are quite likely to be very, very complicated. They reach out with a lot of customer support messages. They are very price sensitive. So they think they, they are owed every single bit of your attention. And we, we noticed that the, the people who would go for that plan and not go for the, the 10 bucks, un, almost unlimited plan, the, the one, the five, uh, five bucks a month plan we had was limited to, I guess, 150 students that you could have in your system. And most teachers never really reached that number anyway, because uh, they may not teach as much. But um, yeah, most teachers said, okay, this is the professional plan. I'm going to pay 10 bucks a month, right? Because that's like the, the pricing uh, psychology there. But the people who bought the, the five bucks a month plan and then complained to us all the time, we just couldn't handle the workload. There was just so much going on. There, there was a lot of chargebacks. There was a lot of people complaining about us not adding more features at the same time. Don't want to sound too negative, but we had a lot of negative experiences there. So we scrapped that. 
And then we were at a 10 bucks a month plan or 110 bucks a year plan. We had like discounted yearly, which is also great. That is one of the best things we ever did was ha- adding a yearly plan from the beginning because the, the, the capital influx that comes from having a yearly plan where people pay $110 instead of 10 every single month just really adds up if you want to invest in better infrastructure, if you actually want to pay somebody to work for your company. Having a, a couple dozen people who give you a couple thousand dollars ahead allows you to scale much more. In a, in, a, in a sustainable way, obviously, but still, it allows you to do a much more capital-intense stuff than if everybody is on a monthly recurring plan. Also, committing to a year is a pretty good indicator that you might be onto something with your product, right? Because if people think, I'm in an almost temporary job, because online teaching is temporary for most people, and I'm still committing for a year of this product, that's a pretty clear story at that point. So after a year, we noticed that... Um, we added a lot of features to our product, but we still charge the same price. After we cut it off at, at the, the 10 bucks a month plan, we had the, the cloud, Feedback on the Cloud, which was a collaborative template sharing system. But we also had added like more yeah, machine learning system to work in the background to do some fancy uh, pronoun translation stuff. And we had it like snippets with text, uh, text expander like stuff where you could add like quick um, text manipulation things. And we, we had built a product that was much better than the product that we sold for 10 bucks a month. So it was clear to us that we should probably charge more. And then we did the thing that Patrick Campbell will, will never accept. We grandfathered <laughs> all of our existing customers into the 10 bucks plan. Um, we should probably have done that on like a limited time scale, grandfathered for a year and then increased them up yeah. to 15. But uh, again, price sensitive customer segment, lots of goodwill, lots of good community around our product. We didn't just want to flip a switch, make, I don't know what, what it would have been, like 60, 70,000 a month instead of 50 or 45 or wherever we were at that point, but have people hate us for forcing them to pay more money. Just really didn't, didn't vibe with our kind of audience. So we made the choice to grandfather everybody in. We allowed people to, we announced it like a month in advance. We told them for everybody who signs up after or who subscribes after December 31st, uh, the new price will be in effect. But if you subscribe before, you get the old price. We had a lot of spike around Christmas. That was kind of cool. And then we introduced a referral system, which to this day has been extremely successful. It was uh, teachers love referring other teachers for all different kinds of things. So that has been like 40% of incoming signups come through the referral system, which is great. Says a lot about working referral system right there. Because we did it with a dual incentive in the beginning. So would you say that um, that referral system is now the most significant thing you've done to sort of grow Feedback Panda or other things contributed more? You know, that is a very interesting question. (laughs) I think the most important thing to contribute to the growth of Feedback Panda was the fact that we built a collaborative tool. Um, that had people talking and sharing with other people built in. So I think that is that is the main driver of growth because it's it's the network effect in action, right? Everything you add to the product multiplies the value of the product. It's not just an addition, it's a multiplication. But the referral system has been instrumental to at least su- sustained growth. So yes, it is very important. And the great thing is teachers like ours, they already knew how referrals worked. Because they were for companies that have referral systems built into their own system. So it's not just teachers referring Feedback Panda to other teachers. They actually get paid by the schools to refer new teachers. So the friends and family, that kind of stuff, right? Your old friend from high school. Yeah, do we want to teach English online for Chinese kids? Here's my referral link. And then they, they get onboarded and they make like a couple hundred bucks a referral. So they knew exactly that there's value in referring. So it was super easy for us to build it in. So that was a low-hanging fruit, to be honest. And we did it like a year in. Should have done it much earlier, but it kind of works. So yeah, I think... Building a network-based system is is very important to growth. 
we talked about this uh, a little bit a few weeks back. Um, we're both fans of this book called Hooked, written by Nir Yal, who's also come on the podcast twice to talk about his books, including Hooked. And I use Hooked to sort of determine how I build indie hackers. It's informed a lot of my product decisions, but you guys also used it to help you build Feedback Panda. And so I know we're, we're pushing it on time here, but I, I would be remiss to let you go without diving into a little bit of how you did this, because I think it's so helpful for founders, especially who are building apps where there's some social component, some sharing component to really think about this. So how have you used um, the models from Hooked to build Feedback Panda and make it collaborative? Yeah, the Hooked cycle has been instrumental and I'm really, really grateful to Nier for thinking of that because that the fact that that the last part of the hook cycle, it's like trigger action, variable reward, and the last part is investment. And at some point I figured out that investment in our case means actually putting a template that you would use as a teacher into your own database on Feedback Panda. And by having that then be shared to other teachers, it would trigger them and it would allow them to import the template and it would allow them to get a new template that they wouldn't have to write for themselves. And then they would use it. And when they wrote a new template, they would invest it into the platform and it would go back and trigger action variable word and, and, and investment it. That the cycle was a, an integral part of our collaboration tool. And I, I guess it's also an integral part of our referral system, right? Every referral system had to, has that built in too, but we made it the core of the engine of the product. And that has just led network-based growth from the beginning, from when we, we pulled it in. So I'm extremely thankful for, for Hooked. And it's, it's an amazing book, just uh, explaining how we can build habit-forming products for good, right? It's, it's not just necessarily getting people hooked on your product, because we wanted to build a product that people would use every single day and would benefit from every single day. We just want to drain money from their bank accounts and not have to deal with it. We wanted to build something really meaningful that enabled them to make more money, have more free time, spend time with their kids, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So... Yeah, Hooked is it's my number one book that I recommend to every single founder because the, the mental model of the Hooked cycle is just is extremely valuable. It's crazy how deep you can dive into every aspect of your business. So if it's the product, you can read books like Hooked and there's just, I don't know, years and years of courses and classes and trainings and books you can read and take to get better at building products. And if it's the market, there's a whole mm-hmm. bunch of stuff on market research and talking to customers. And if it's the business model, uh, you mentioned Patrick Campbell. He's got a ton of information out there about monetization and how much you charge mm-hmm. and distribution channels. Don't even get me started. It's just an endless array of information. But I really like what you said about Hooked and about the fact that you can build a habit-forming product that helps people develop good habits. You did that with Feedback Panda and helping teachers. And it's what I'm working on at Indie Hackers as well, trying to get people to develop habits that help them build better businesses. Yeah, it's it's about enabling people. And if you can habitualize a good thing, like going to the gym or reading a book or t- like writing in your journal every single day, like that actually changes the life for the better, right? These kind of things, if you habitualize them, they make you a better person. So if you can build a product that it has habitualization built in and provides value every single time people use it, I mean, that, that to me is a net positive, right? Well, listen, Arvid, you have a wealth of experience, not just from growing and selling Feedback Panda, but also from starting businesses that didn't work out and from reading a ton of books. What would your advice be for the average indie hacker out there who's just listening in and wondering whether or not they should start a business too? Well, I think everybody should try. Everybody should start something that they really, really care about. I think building a business has never been as easy as today. Like you don't even need to be a developer to build a software business, right? You just had a, an episode on no code and, and this kind of situation a couple of weeks back. And th- th- you can build a, a viable business without touching 
like a single line of code. You don't need to. You, um, eventually, you might want to. Right? At least that's me, the software engineer, talking. I kind of want to get into the specifics at some point. But that is also just a perspective. It doesn't have to happen. And if you have an idea, or at least if you have an understanding of an audience and their problem, and then have an idea, that is actually, it's important to, to just enable and help other people. That's, I think, where all business should come from. Of course, it has benefits for the people who run the business, who own it. Like, we sold our company. That's great. It's life-changing amount of money, that kind of stuff. But it, the most important part to me is that we help tens of thousands of teachers do their job better. And if you want to do that, if you want to impact the life of other people, and if you want to impact the, the value that they can create by enabling them, then you should start a business and then you should build a product and then you should find the problems and solve them and make people more capable than they were before. I think that's the purpose of all business. All entrepreneurs should should really go for that. No, I would hope that everybody tries and starts their thing. I mean, not everybody will succeed, but everybody could. So Everybody could succeed. Arvid Call, thanks so much for coming on the show. Can you tell listeners where they can go to learn more about Feedback Panda and also about the new blog and newsletter that you're working on? Yeah, feedbackpanda.com is, is the, the website of the product. Um, you can also find them on Twitter, I guess, at, at feedbackpanda. You can find me on Twitter at, at Avidkal, which is A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. That's also my handle on, on Indie Hackers, so you can also follow me there. And the, the blog is uh, thebootstrapfounder.com, where I also have a newsletter going on. Um, I'm, I started the newsletter because I want to write every single week, so I want to help hold myself accountable. So that's why every single week there's going to be a, a post, and there's going to be an article, and there's going to be a newsletter with things from the bootstrap world that I found, that I found interesting, my learnings, all these kind of things that I want to share, and yeah, all, all these kind of things. So Very cool. I'll be subscribing. Thanks again, Arvid. <laughs> Thanks so much. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode and hearing from Arvid, I would appreciate it if you gave him a shout-out. He is Arvid Call on Twitter. And his website is thebootstrappedfounder.com. Feel free to subscribe to his newsletter and show him your support. Also, if you're interested in receiving the newsletter for the Indie Hackers podcast, I send it out every Monday with each new episode. You just get my thoughts on every episode, my takeaways, and what I thought was interesting. So that's at indiehackers.com slash podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you next time. Mm-hmm.